Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, I believe number seven, and we're on his chapter six, it's seasonableness. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. He hath made everything beautiful in its time, Ecclesiastes 3, 1, and 11. If the whole of these 11 verses be read consecutively, it will be seen that they furnish a full outline of the many and different experiences of human life in this world. Every aspect of man's varied career and his reactions thereto being stated. That which is emphasized in connection with all the mutations and vicissitudes of life is that they are all ordained and regulated by God according to his unerring wisdom. Not only has he appointed a time to every purpose under heaven, but everything is beautiful in his time. <clears throat> nothing is too early, nothing too late. Everything is perfectly coordinated. And as we learn from the New Testament, made to work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 There is a predestined time which each creature in each event shall come forth, how long it shall continue, and what circumstances it shall be, all being determined by the Lord. This is true of the world as a whole, for God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 3.11 This earth has not always existed. God was the one who decided when it should spring into being, and he created it by a mere fiat. Psalm 33.9, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Nor will it last forever, for the hour is coming when its very element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and its works that are therein shall be burned up. Second Peter 3.10 How far distant or how near that solemn hour is, no creature has any reason of knowing. Has any means of, means of knowing. Yet the precise day for it unchangeably is unchangeably fixed in the divine decree. The same grand truth which pertains to the whole of creation applies with equal force to the workings of divine providence. The beginning and the end, and the whole of intervening career of each person has been determined by his maker. So to the rise, the progress, the height attained, and the entire history of each nation has been foreordained of God. Romans 11.36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. A nation is but the aggregate of individuals comprising it and through its corporate life be much longer than that of any one generation of its members, yet it is subject to the same divine laws. Each kingdom, each empire, has its birth, development, its maturity, and zenith, its decline and death. The Egyptians had, so had the Babylons, Medo-Persia, Gre Grecian, and Roman. <clears throat> what is stating Ecclesiastes 3, 1, and 11 holds good of things in the spiritual realm. Equally so with those in the material realm. The one we have to forget this in connection with the former, there was with the latter. It is a fact that in the Christian life, to everything there is a season, a time, and a purpose under heaven. How can it be otherwise, seeing that God, the God of creation, and the God of providence, and the God of all grace, is one? It is true there is much in the divine operations, both in providence and in grace, which is profoundly mysterious. For great things doeth he, which he cannot be comprehended. Job 37.5 Yet not a little light is cast upon these higher mysteries if we seek to observe the ways and workings of God and nature. How often would the Lord Jesus make use of that principle, directing the attention of the hearers to the most familiar objects in the physical realm? Again and again we find the divine teacher using the, the things growing in the field to illustrate and undumbrate the things that are invisible and to inoculate lessons of spiritual value. Consider the lilies. Not only look upon and admire them, but receive instruction therefrom. Learn the parable of a fig tree, Matthew twenty four thirty two. Yes, learn from the, learn from it, ponder it, let it inform you about spiritual matters. 
<clears throat> when Christ insisted on the inseparable connection there is between character and conduct. He implied the similitude of a tree being known by its fruit. When he urged the necessity of new hearts for the reception of a new covenant blessings, he spoke of new bottles for new, for new wine. When he revealed the essential conditions of spiritual fruitfulness, he mentioned the vine in its branches. Yes, there is much in the material world from which we may learn valuable lessons in the spiritual life. Take the seasons which God has apprehended, appointed for the year, and how each brings forth accordingly. The coldness and barrenness of the winter gives place to the warmth and fertility of the spring, while the vegetables and fruit which sprout in the spring grow, and through the, the summer are matured, are matured in the autumn. Each season has its own particular features and characteristic products. The same principle is seen operating in, human, in a human being. The life of a man is directed into distinct seasons or stages, childhood, youth, maturity, and old age. And each of those stages is marked by characteristic features. The innocence and shyness of normal children, the zeal and vigor of youth, the stability and endurance of maturity, the experience and wisdom of old age. And each of these distinctive features is beautiful in its time. Not only is God appointed for the particular seasons, when each of his creatures shall come forth and flourish, but we are obliged to, to wait his time for the same. If we sow seeds in the winter, they will not germinate. Plants which sprout in the spring cannot be forced, but have to wait for the summer sun. So it is with the human realm. To everything there is a season and a time, to every purpose under the heaven. We cannot put the old heads on young shoulders. And such efforts will not only will not only prove unsuccessful, but issue in disastrous consequences. As everything is beautiful in, in its time, <coughs> there are incongruous and unseemly out of season. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 1 Corinthians 13.11 In the light of which has been said, it is both interesting and instructive to ponder the ways of God with his people during the Old Testament and New Testament eras. Much of what is obtained under the Mosaic Dispensation was suited to that infantile period, and another Mosaic Dispensation was suited to that inf excuse me, was suited to that infantile period and was beautiful in its time. And now that the process of time the fullness of time has come, such things would be quite out of place. During that kindergarten stage, God instituted an elaborate ritual which appealed to the senses and instructed by means of picture and symbols. There is the colorful tabernacle the priestly vestments, the burning of incense, the playing of instruments. They were all invested with a typical significance, but when the substance appeared, there was no further need of them. They had become obsolete, and to bring forward such things into Christian worship is this unseasonable lasping back to the nursery stage. All that has been pointed out above is most pertinent to the spiritual growth of the individual Christian, and particularly to the several stages of his development or progress. And if duly attended, Two, should persevere for many mistaken notions and erroneous conclusions. As the year is divided into different seasons, so the Christian life has different stages. And there are certain features which more or less characterize the year's seasons. So there are certain experiences more or less particular to each stage in the Christian life. And as each of the year's seasons is marked by the decided change in which the garden and the order, orchard then bringing forth, so there is a variation and alteration in the graces manifested, and the fruits borne by the Christian during the several stages through which he passes. But everything is beautiful in its time, and it would be incongruous out of its season. Now, though the earth's seasons are four in number, yet only three of them are concerned with fertility or production. 
The analogy pertains spiritually. In the Christian life, there is a spring, a summer, and an autumn. The winter is when his body has been committed to the grave, ensuring certain hope of resurrection, awaiting the eternal spring. <clears throat> Thus, we should expect to find that the more explicit teaching of the New Testament divides the spiritual life of the saint on earth into three stages. And such is indeed the case. In one of his parables of the kingdom of God, Christ sees the similitude of a man casting seed in the ground, a figure of preaching the gospel, saying the kingdom bringeth forth of itself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. Mark 4.28 <clears throat> And there are three stages of growth. In like manner, we find the apostle grading those to whom he wrote under three classes, namely fathers, young men, and little children. 1 John 2.13 Nothing which lives is brought into maturity immediately in this lower world. Instead, everything advances by gradual growth and orderly progress. God indeed created Adam and Eve in their full perfection, but he does not regenerate us into our complete stature in Christ. All the parts and faculties of the new man come into being in the new birth, but time is needed for their development and manifestation. Moreover, as natural talents are not bestowed uniformly, to some being given five, to others two, and to others only one, Matthew twenty-five fifteen. So God bestows a greater measure of grace to one of his people than to another. There is therefore a great difference among Christians. All are not of one stature, strength, and growth, and godliness. Some are sheep, others are but lambs, John 21, 15, and 16. Some are strong, others are weak, Romans 15, 1. Some are but babes, but others are of full age, Hebrews 5, 13, and 14. Nevertheless, each brings forth fruit in his season, Psalm 1.3. If more attention were paid to the principles which we have sought to enunciate and illustrate, some of us would be preserved from, forms, from forming harsh judgments of our younger brethren and sisteren, and from criticizing them because we do not, they do not exercise the graces and bear those fruits which pertain more to the stage of mature Christianity. One should instantly perceive the folly of a farmer who complained because his field of grain bore no golden ears during the early months of spring. Equally senseless and sinful is to blame a babe in Christ because he has neither the nature, mature judgment nor the patience of an experienced and long-term believer. To that statement, every spiritual reader will readily assent. Yet, we, are very, we very much fear that some of those very persons are guilty of the same thing in another direction, selfward, reproaching themselves in later life because they lack the glow and ardor, the zeal and zest which formerly characterized them. Some older Christians look back and compare themselves with the days of their spiritual youth when they utter hard, and they utter hard things against themselves, concluding that so far from being advanced, they have retrograded. In certain cases, their lamentations are justifiable, as with Solomon. But in many cases, they are not warrantable, being occasioned by a wrong standard of measurement. And through failing to bear its in mind the seasonableness or unseasonableness of certain fruits, at particular times. They, they complain now because they lack the liveliness of earlier days when they had warmer affections for Christ and his people, more joy in reading the word and prayer, more zeal in seeking to promote the good of others, more fruit for their labors. They complain that they are now spend more time in using the means of grace, that they now spend more time using the means of grace. Others who are but spiritual babes appear to derive far greater benefit, though less diligent in duties than they are. In some cases... Where conversion has been more radical and clearly marked, growth is more easily perceived. But where conversion itself was a quiet and gradual experience, it is much more difficult to trace out the subsequent progress that is made. As the Christian obtains more and more light from God, he becomes 
increasingly aware of his filth. And by his apprehensions of his decrease, he will increase in humility. As spiritual wisdom increases, he measures himself by a higher standard, and thus becomes more conscious of his coming, coming short thereof. Formerly, he was more occupied with his outward walk, but now he is more diligent in seeking to discipline his heart. In earlier years, <clears throat> there may have been more fervor in his prayers, but now his petitions be more spiritual. As the Christian grows spiritually, his desires enlarge. And because his attainments do not keep pace, he is apt to err in his judgment of himself. There is, there is that maketh poor, yet hath great riches. Proverbs 13.7 Young Christians are generally more enthusiastic and active. Yet their zeal is not always according to knowledge, and at times it is unreasonable, unseasonable. It is not always according to knowledge, and at times it is unseasonable, though neglecting temporal affairs for spiritual. A young Christian is ready to respond to almost any plausible appeal for money. But a mature one is more cautious before he acts, lest he should be supporting enemies of the truth. The older Christian may not perform some duties with the same zeal as formerly, yet with more conscience, quality rather than quantity, is what now most concerns him. As we grow older, greater and more difficulties are encountered, and the overcoming of them evidences that we have a larger measure of grace. Particular graces may not be so be as conspicuous as previously, yet the exercises of new ones be more evident. 2 Peter 1, 5-7. Measure not your growth by any one part of your life, but by every single aspect of it, and by your Christian career as a whole. It is by no means a simple matter for act, to accurately declassify believers as to which particular greater class they belong to in the school of Christ. Either concerning ourselves or others for spiritual growth is rarely uniform, though it ought, though it ought to be so. Some Christians are weak and strong at one and the same time, yet in different respects, as both experience and observation show. Some have better heads than hearts, while others have sounder hearts than heads. Some are weak in knowledge, ignorant, and unsettled in the faith, who nevertheless put to shame their better instructed brethren by their love and zeal, by their walk and their fruitfulness. Others have a good understanding of the truth, but are variable babes when it comes to putting it into practice. Solomon was endued with great wisdom, but ruined his testimony through yielding to fleshly lusts. Quote, this is Thomas Manton. A Christian should labor for a good heart, well-headed, and a head well-hearted. That's Thomas Manton. Again, it needs to be borne in mind that there are great differences in the same Christian at sundry times, yea, within a single season. So there are three stages of spiritual growth may coincide in a single saint. The maturest father, in some respects, may be weak as a newborn babe in other regards, and tempted as violently as the young man. The case of the godliest man is not always uniform. One day he may be wrapped under the holy mount to behold Christ in his glory. and the same evening he may be tossed with winds and waves and his feelings. Uh, be like a ship on the point of sinking. Now he may, like Paul, be caught up into paradise and favored with revelations, which he cannot express to others, and anon be afflicted with a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet him. <coughs> Calms and storms peace and troubles, combats and conquests, weakness and strength, alternate in the lives of God's people. Yet in each they may bring forth fruit which is beautiful in his time. All that has been dealt upon above may appear to some of our readers as being so elementary and obvious that there was really no need to point out the same. Though that may be the case, there are others who may at least require to be reminded there. It is not so much our knowledge, but our use we make of it that counts the most. And often our worst failures issue not from ignorance, but from acting contrary to the light we have. 
A due recognition of the seasonableness or unseasonableness of a particular spiritual fruits in the Christian life will preserve from many wrong conclusions. On the one hand, it should keep him from expecting to find in a spiritual babe those fruits and developed graces which pertain to a state of maturity. And on the other hand, he who regards himself as a father in Christ must vindicate that estimation by bringing forth far more than do young Christians. Roman numeral 2. The leading principle we sought to emulate and illustrate, namely, fruit seasonable to the season, receives exemplification in that statement, a word spoken in due season, how good it is, Proverbs 15.23. A word of sympathy to one in trouble, of encouragement to the dependent, of warning to the careless. Hence, we find the minister of Christ exhorting, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.2. By the in-season and out-of-season, we understand its stated times and its opportunity occurs. The same principle was exemplified by the Baptist when he said, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Matthew 3.8 Praising God for his mercies at that time would have been unseasonable. Rather, we with, was godly sorrow for the abuse of them called for. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. Ecclesiastes 3.4 Fruitfulness is an essential quality of a godly person but its fruit should be seasonable. A time of suffering calls for self-examination, confession, and the exercise of patience. A time for testing and trial requires the exercise of faith and courage. When blessed with revivings and spiritual prosperity, holy joy and praise are becoming. It is written, Isaiah 30:18. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Wait for the time he has appointed for the development and manifestation of particular graces. Unseasonable graces are like untimely figs, which are never fully flavored. Most of us are too impatient. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto which, unto them which are exercised thereby. Hebrews 12:11. Exercised in confidence as to what has given occasion for the chastisement, exercising faith for the filling of that's promise, and patience while awaiting the same. As we turn now to look at the characteristics which mark the three stages of the Christian life, it must be borne in mind, number one, we are not to understand that which is predicated of the fathers in no wise pertains to the babes, but rather that the particular grace ascribed abounds in the former more eminently. Number two, that which is said of each of the three ways in different respects belong to the single Christian. So the young man who may be strong may be in another way, be weak as to the babes. Number three, we may not lose sight of God's liberty in apportioning his grace uh, as and when he pleases. <clears throat> he works not uniformly and causes some of his people to make much more rapid progress than others during the early years of the Christian life, while others who seem to be at the start overtaken pass them at a later stage. 1 John 2.12 I write unto you, little children, technia, because your sins are forgiven you in his name's sake, for his name's sake. 1 John 2.13 I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, Padilla, because you have known the Father. First John 2.13 This is a classical passage on the present aspect of our theme. Though its force is somewhat obscured through the translators make, making no distinction between the two different Greek words they have rendered for little children. In First John, First John 2.12 pertains to the whole of the called family of of God, irrespective of growth and attainment. For every believer has his sins forgiven him for Christ's sake. 
The word used there is little children, is a term for endearment, and is employed by Christ in John 13, 33 when addressing the apostles, and occurs again in this epistle in 2, 28 and 3, 7, etc. Only in 1 John 2, 13 are believers graded in three distinct classes according to the degree of their spiritual progress. Fathers, young men, and little children, or preferably babes to mark the distinction from the word used in verse 12. That is the order of dignity and responsibility. Had it been the order of grace, it had been babes, young men, and fathers. As some have said, if Christ were to enter a Christian gathering for the purpose of showing forth his favor, he would commence with the youngest and feeblest one present. But if to judge the works of the servants, he would begin with the maturest saint. For example, Christ appeared many times after his resurrection. He ended by manifesting himself to the Apostle Paul. But with whom did he begin? With Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. The same principle is illustrated in the parable of the pence. Grace, beginning with the eleventh hour labor, but reversed in the parable of the talents, where responsibility is in view. As we are writing on the subject of spiritual progress, we must, uh, as with most writers, designate it growth in grace. We propose to inverse the order of First John 2.13 and consider first the spiritual babes. If anyone should consider, we are taking an unwarrantable liberty with the word, in so doing, we would appeal to Mark 4.28, where our Lord spoke of the first the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn in the, in the ear. And now, as we seek to grapple more closely with our present task, we have to acknowledge we experience considerable difficulty in attempting to set forth with any measure of definiteness that what is which specifically marks the latter, the spiritual babe, in contrast with young men and fathers or if others prefer, that which distinguishes the blade from the ear and the full corn in the ear. But if we cannot satisfy our readers, we trust that we may be kept from confusing any of them. If in view of the vast superior conditions which obtain in the day of the apostles, illustrated by such passages as Acts 2.44 and 45, 11, 19-21, 1 Corinthians 12, 8-11, it is not to be supposed that many of the features which marked the glorious period will be reproduced in a day of small things, Zechariah 4.10, such as which we are now have living, in which we are now living. The line of demarcation between the church and the world was much more plainly drawn than it is now. The contrast between lifeless and living professors more easily preserved and so on. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that the distinct stages of the Christian life and the different forms which believers occupied in the school of Christ were then more plainly marked, and though the difference between one degree rather than of kind, yet that very difference renders it the more difficult for us to describe or identify the several grades. Now he's writing this probably, who knows, 19, let's say 1910 or 1920. Uh, things, as we become more and more post-Christian in our culture and pagan, uh, we are returning more like the Roman Empire where the demarcation between a Christian and a pagan is going to be much more fixed, especially with this new generation with their tattoos and their piercings and their uh, lesbianism and homosexuality and all the perverseness. Continuing. In his most excellent letters on religion, religious subjects, John Newton had three pieces entitled Grace in the Blade, Grace in the Ear, Grace in the Full Corn. He began his second piece by saying, Quote, the manner of the Lord's work on the hearts of his people is not easily traced, though the fact is certain and the evidence demonstrable from Scripture. In attempting to explain, we can only speak in general, 
enter at loss to form such a description as we take in the immense variety of cases which occur in the experience of believers. End of quote. <clears throat> it is just because so many preachers have failed to take into, a, take into their account that, quote, immense variety of cases. And instead, have pictured the experience of conversion as though it were cast in a uniform mold, that members of their truly converted because their experience differed widely from, described, from that described by the preacher. And what he's talking about is extremely important because there are people who are sincere Christians who have all kinds of struggles. And then there are people who are Christians who seem to be really solid, almost from the beginning. There's all different kinds of Christians. Uh, somebody may be kind of flaky. That doesn't mean he's not a Christian. And these people uh, uh, who are quick to judge everybody, I remember I had somebody in a church and somebody came to visit who had long, his hair was not long compared to the Puritans, but it was kind of long. And he, he's, oh, that guy's not a Christian. Look at his hair. Uh, I mean, that's just wicked to speak that way. There are different people and there are different degrees of maturity and some people have more problems than others. And some people have backgrounds, they come out of bad pagan backgrounds where they have a lot more things to overcome than somebody, for example, raised in a solid Christian home. These, we have to take into account all these things. And, you know, that's why we have to love each other and cut each other some slack and be kind to each other. George Whitfield stated, I have heard a person who was in a company with 14 members of the gospel, ministers of the gospel, some of whom were eminent servants of Christ, and yet not one of them could tell the time when God first manifested himself to their soul. End of quote. Then he went on to say to his hearers and readers, quote, We do not love the Pope because we love to be popes ourselves and set up our own experience as a standard to others. Those that have had such a conversion as the Philippian jailer or the Jews in the day of Pentecost may say, you are not Christians at all because you have not had that light, terrible experience. You may as well say to your neighbor, you have not had a child, for you are not in labor all night. The question is whether a real child is born, not how long was the preceding pain, but whether it was productive of the new birth and whether Christ has been formed in your hearts. End of quote. Some are like, and, and I know that's very common among uh, fundamentalist evangelicals, if you can't tell the exact time you were converted, you're not a Christian. Well, that's nonsense. It's not, you know, it's not really nonsense for somebody raised as a pagan and you know, hey, I, but it's, it's really nonsense, especially for people raised in the faith where they have no idea when they first became a Christian because they always believed. A lot of people raised as Christians, they always believed. From the moment they could believe, they, could, they believed. Continuing. Some are likely to object to what is said above and say, though the circumstances of conversion may vary in different times, yet the essentials are the same in all. The law must do its work before the soul is prepared for the gospel, and the heart must be made sensible for its sickness before it will betake itself to the great physician. Even though that should be the experience of many of the saints, yet the Holy Spirit is by no means tied down to that order of things, nor do the scriptures warrant any such restricted view. Take the cases of Peter and Andrew, his brother, and the two sons of Zebedee, Matthew 4, 18 to 22. And there is nothing in the sacred narrative to show that they went through a season of conviction of sin before they followed a Christ. Nor was there in the case of Matthew 9, 9. Zacchaeus was apparently attracted by mere curiosity to obtain a sight of the Lord Jesus. And a work of grace was wrought in his heart immediately. And he received him joyfully, Luke 19, 6. Let us not be misunderstood at this point. 
we are neither casting any reflection upon those ministers who preach the law by which a knowledge of sin is obtained, Romans 3.20, nor disparaging the importance and necessity of conviction of sin. Rather are we insisting that God is perfectly free to work as he pleases, and that I have no scriptural reason to doubt the reality of my conversion simply because my heart was then melted by the sense of God's wondrous love, rather than awed by the discovery of his holiness, or terrified by the realization of his wrath. And that I have no warrant to call into question the genuineness of another's conversion, merely because it was not cast in a certain mold. The all-important thing is whether the subsequent walk evidences that which I have, that I have passed from death unto life. In Zechariah 12.10, mourning follows and not precedes a saving looking upon Christ. There are some who taste the bitterness of sin more sharply after conversion than they did before. <clears throat> now, as the Holy Spirit is pleased, and it's interesting, there are people that I looked up to and thought what great pious Christians they were who then apostatized. And there are people that I looked at as total flakes, and I thought, man, I'm not sure that person's a Christian who later became rock-solid Christians. We can't put things into a mold. We have to be very careful, and we have, cannot be judgmental. Obviously, if there's known sin or something that's obvious, you follow Matthew 18, and you work to retrieve the person properly. But there's a, ju you know, there's a judgmental spirit of Christians that is horrible. If, you're not, if, if you believe somebody's in sin, and you're not working to retrieve them out of sin, and you're just gossiping about them, you're acting like a pagan. You're not acting like a Christian. And I see that all the time, especially on the Internet. You know, where, where terrible things are said about people, and it's like, hey, if you believe that person's in sin, did you talk to them? Did you work with them? And the answer is no. They just like to badmouth people. They act like pagans. Continuing. Now, as the Holy Spirit is pleased to use different means in connection with the conversion of saints, so all there is a real variety in the experiences of those newly brought to a saving knowledge of the truth. On the other hand, as there are certain essentials found in every genuine conversion, the turning from sin, self, the world unto God and Christ, receiving him as our personal Lord and Savior, and then following him in the path of obedience. So there are certain characteristics in babes in Christ which distinguish them from the young men and fathers. And the very name by which they are designated more or less defines those characteristics. As infants are little children, they are largely creatures of impulse, swayed by their emotions more than regulated by judgment. Feelings play a large part in their lives. They are very impressionable, easily influenced, and largely unsuspecting, believing readily whatever is told them by those who have their confidence. 1 John 2.13, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. That is a distinguishing mark which none other than the Holy Spirit has given to that spiritual infant. To that spiritual infant. It is a statement which needs to be particularly taken to heart and pondered by some of our readers. For it plainly signifies that unless we know the Father, we are not entitled to regard ourselves as being his children. In the natural life, the very first thing which babes and young children discover is an acknowledgement in their infantile way of their parents, aiming to call them by their names, Papa and Mama, and distinguishing them from others. And by the way, most the first word that the vast majority of babies learn is Mommy or Mama in whatever language you speak and distinguishing them from others. And thus it is also spiritually the distinguishing act of babes in Christ is their acknowledgement, acknowledging God to be their father, and that they do so by expressing in their way their attachment to him, their delight in him, and their dependence upon him, lisping out his name in their praises and petitions before the throne of grace. 
What we have just pointed out is agreeable to such passages as these. John uh, Jeremiah 3.19 They shall call me, my father, and shall not turn away from me. Here's Jeremiah 31.9 and 20. I am a father to the spiritual Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim, my dear son, my, a pleasant child. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. In the first formal instruction, which the Lord Jesus gave to his young disciples, he bade them, Matthew 6, 9, After this manner pray you, Our Father which art in heaven. How can we approach him with any confidence or freedom unless we view him in this blessed relation? If we have been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, then God is our Father. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Father, Galatians 4, 6. And that Spirit causes its professor to come in a holy, familiar, and childlike manner to God, and evidence itself in a desire to honor and please him. <clears throat> Not only would it be misleading to our minds for the young convert, even though old in years, to be likened to a little child, Matthew 18, 2 and 3, unless there is a real resemblance, and thus a propriety in employing this figure. But it would also be a strange departure from one of the well-established ways of, ways of God, namely, his having so wrought in his first creation as to strikingly foreshadow his works in the new creation, the natural having been to adumbrate the spiritual. We see that principle and facts illustrate in every direction. As the natural, so the spiritual. There is a begetting, James 1.19, a conception of Christ being formed in the soul, Galatians 4.19, a birth, 1 Peter 1.23, and that birth evidenced by a cry, Romans 8.15, and a newborn babe bizarring the sincere milk of the word, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. So there are many features in common between the natural and the spiritual infant. Little children are far more regulated by the affections than by their understanding, and the young Christian is much taken by the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the comforts of the Holy Spirit. He delights greatly in his own experience, and to hear the experience of others. As the natural child is timorous and easily scared, so the young Christian is quickly alarmed, as was, evidencing, as was evidenced by the fearful disciples on the storm-swept sea, to when the Savior said, O ye of little faith! And the digestive system of the youngster is feeble, so the babe in Christ <clears throat> needs to be fed on milk rather than strong meat. John sixteen twelve. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Owing to an undeveloped understanding, babes in Christ are not established in the faith. Be no more children tossed to and fro by about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14. A young convert, and this is from Pierce, a young convert is much taken with his own importunity in prayer, with his own enlargements and affections, they being very warm and lively, with the multitude of means and the much time he spends in the use of them and observance of them, whereas a believer of longer standing and greater mature measure of spiritual growth values those discoveries which the Holy Spirit gives him in prayer and inward converse of the Lord, of the Father's free love and the Son's personal, particular, and prevalent intercession on his behalf. And he is more taken with these than with his own fervor and supplications. The babes in Christ are particularly affected with a sense and enjoyment of pardoning mercy and calling God Father. Hence, the blessings of pardon of sin, peace with God, the spirit of adoption, 
and the advancement in and increased spiritual perception of these precious realities must be a growth in grace such as is quite suited to their spiritual stature and circumstances. And that's the chapter 5 ends, and we'll quit there. Um, that's chapter 5. It's chapter 6 in the book. I think our seventh one. Just wonderful stuff. And that's that's really important uh, in understanding sanctification because there's a danger of self-examination to the point of doubting your salvation. And some people do that and then they just give up. What's the point? I just, I'm, I'm such a rotten sinner, I might as well just give up. And Satan says that. And also people not taking into account that people are at different spiritual levels and being very judgmental of somebody who's a young believer or somebody who have been raised a pagan and developed all kinds of ungodly habits and he has to struggle much more with these things than somebody raised as a strict Christian. In Israel, uh, if a pagan came into Israel from outside of certain pagan tribes, it took 10 generations before they could be in service. And there's wisdom in that. Somebody raised a Christian is much more dependable and solid often than somebody not raised a Christian. However, often I've seen people raised as Christians take things for granted too much than somebody who was came out of paganism and, and just relishes the fact that they've been delivered such slave, from such slavery to sin and vanity. Just think of those poor souls that are raised in paganism and, and they're slaves to drugs and they're slaves to sexual perversion and they're slaves to all sorts of sins. They're living in darkness. They're in bondage to Satan. And to be converted for them has got to be a wonderful experience of salvation. As where if you're raised a Christian, I see that often there's a temptation to take things for granted and we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that at all. But let us learn from this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this. Teaching pink is wonderful. We thank you for this, Lord. We ask that you would ingrain this into our minds. Help us to learn from it and benefit from it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.